the land tax itself is a charge on the land. And what that means is that if you try and sell the land, the land tax will be first in line, even before the bank. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 248 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Land tax never stops. Each year, the New South Wales government knocks on your door to ask for your contribution to the state finances if you own an investment property in New South Wales, of course, otherwise not. So we are talking about New South Wales land tax. But maybe your land qualifies for an exemption or maybe it qualifies at least for the tax-free threshold. Whether it does, you will find out in this episode with Jeff Steen of Brownwright Steen Lawyers in Sydney. The land tax is assessed based on holdings as at the 31st of December or midnight on the 31st of December in the year immediately preceding the tax year. So, for example, the 2021 land tax year is based on holdings as at midnight, 31 December 2020. And what the purpose of that survey is, is to say, well, if you hold land at that point in time, then that land is going to be assessed to you subject to an exemption. A number of exemptions that are based on use, and there there are occasionally also exemptions that are based on owner or ownership. But most of the exemptions are based on use, which you've highlighted. And while the ownership is counted as at midnight 31 December, and the use at that time is relevant, it necessarily is the case that you have to look at a period before, arguably even a period afterwards, to satisfy yourself that the use for which an exemption is claimed is a use that is current at that time. Since you look at the total of holdings, it means you don't get a tax-free threshold per property. You only get a tax-free threshold per person. Correct. And then the second thing was interesting. You said that if you look, for example, at the tax year 2021, you actually look at the holdings as of 31st December 2020. That's why it's important to remember that what you're doing, though, is looking at what's your holding as at the midnight on 31 December, and then you're looking at what are you using those holdings to do? So are you using them in a way which entitles you to an exemption? And it's not something where you can say, well, on 30th of December, I've moved into this unit and it overlooks the Sydney Harbour Bridge and I can look at the fireworks and that's my main residence for two days. That doesn't wash. You have to have a period in time that includes the 31st of December to say that it is your you are using that property as a main residence as at the 31st of December. But if you sell a property on the 30th of December, then you are out of land tax. And if you buy a property on the 1st of January, then you are also at least exempt for the first year. Not, not exempt, but you don't have to pay land tax for that 31st of December. That's another, another really interesting area. And I know it wasn't on the list that we were going to cover, but if I just talk briefly about it, the rule is that are you an owner? So the assessment is based on ownership. 
but there is a section that talks about circumstances where you can be deemed to be the owner and it looks at vendor-purchaser relationships. And it's particularly important where if the purchaser has paid a deposit in excess of 15% and has an entitlement to occupy the property for whatever reason, then that purchaser will be assessed as owning the land as well. I see, so both The vendor pay. can get away. Essentially, the vendor is able to get excluded in that circumstance. So the vendor can transfer the land tax to the purchaser before the actual settlement? Well, you can do it like that, which is a statutory transfer. And then the other way that's commonly done is to do a contractual transfer. That is that the vendor says, my land tax bill for the 2020 year is, let's say, $10,000. Let's say it's $12,000 to make it nice and easy. And we have a settlement on the 1st of October, so that's nine months into the year. And the vendor might say to the purchaser, I want you to reimburse me for the other three months land tax for which you're going to get the benefit of. Yeah, and that would be a contractual transfer. Whereas, exactly. whereas the statutory transfer would be that I either cut ties and make a complete transfer with settlement on the 31st of December, hence I'm already not liable for land tax anymore, or I receive a deposit of more than 15% and I grant the purchaser the right to occupy on the 31st of December. And hence, that would then already be a statutory transfer for the purposes of land tax and the vendor would be free of land tax and the purchaser would already be liable for land tax. Correct. And there's one more thing when we're talking about vendors and purchasers, which is for people like myself who's still locked in the old ages the dark ages as far as technology goes, the new electronic conveyancing means that you must now register your transfers through that electronic medium. So it will get picked up straight away. It used to be the case that you could prepare a transfer, date it, and then you send your registration clerk up to the land titles office to lodge it over the counter or you give it to the bank and the bank takes however long banks take, you know, sometimes it was two, three months before that they would end up getting them registered after it went through their system. You can't do that anymore either. So you need to make sure that if you're going to be doing a transfer and you're depending on that so that you don't incur a land tax liability, you need to make sure that that is registered and gone through the electronic system before 31st of December. This electronic conveyancing, that has a name, doesn't it? We call it PEXA, but PEXA yes. is New South Wales. That's the organisation that has the authority to do it or the, the franchise to do it in New South Wales. I think Victoria has a different entity, but a, I, I don't uh, practice yes, in but Victoria. but the concept so is the same. concept's exactly the same. So then you're looking through what exemptions might apply. And the two big ones, yeah, for practical purposes are, is it a main residence or is it primary production land? The others are Horton and we can, we can go through them in terms of boarding houses and low-cost accommodation and retirement villages and things like that. But generally speaking, the two big ones that are most contentious are, is it being used as a main residence and is it being used for primary production? Or is it below the threshold of, I think, 734,000? Of course. That's, and that's just simply the assessment. I can still remember when, when it was less than a third of that number. So it's, you know, in, in some respects it's gone up. It hasn't been a, a complete, and, and generally now they, they are lifting it in accordance with CPI. Which is very generous. That should happen to our income tax threshold. Yeah, no, I remember when Joe Hockey was the treasurer and he was telling us all about 
the evils of bracket creep and saying that you know, it was only fair that the tax brackets be indexed according to inflation or, you know, or average weekly wages. But of course, you know, notwithstanding that he had the authority to attempt to implement that type of reform, he never did so. So that means we don't have bracket creep with land tax. We don't have bracket creep with land tax. And so what you're looking at is, with the exception of discretionary trusts, who don't get any threshold, any other type of entity gets a threshold, they only pay tax to the extent that the land value exceeds whatever that is at the moment, 734,000. There are 10 exemptions. And as, as you said, the most important one is the principal place of residence. If a company or a discretionary trust owns the principal residence, then this exemption doesn't apply? Or does it? Yeah, apply? as at 2020, that's correct. If you go back into ancient history to the 1980s, there were particular provisions where if a company owned the property that was being owned by the shareholders, for example, used by the shareholders as their main residence, that you could still qualify for land tax concessions. But yeah, not anymore. So that means if your principal residence is owned by a company or by a trust, be it a discretionary trust or a unit trust, if it's not held in individual names, you are hit twice. You are hit with CGT when you sell and you are hit with land tax every year. That's right. So do not hold your principal place of residence in anything else but individual names. You can also claim the exemption if you're a beneficiary under a concessional trust, though. Would it be a disability trust? Yeah, a disability trust will fall within. Essentially, it's a trust where you have a direct interest that's, that's able to be identified. So if the principal place of residence is held by a disability trust or a similar concessional trust, then the um, main residence exemption for land tax still applies. Yes. And the same applies if you have a life tenancy or if you can live in the house under the terms of a will. With those three exceptions, you can be exempt from land tax, even though you're not the legal owner of the house. Correct. Then the second big exemption is primary production. And if you use the land for primary production and it is zoned as farming land, then I think it's quite straightforward. It gets more complicated when it is not zoned for farming. That's correct. And there are two issues that come into play. One is, even if it's zoned, it's what is the primary purpose of the use? What, what is it mainly used for or dominant purpose of the land? And then the second thing then is you're looking at is... A few years ago, there was a, a change in the law. And if the land is not zoned for primary production or zoned that permits, you know, for example, residential development, then there is a presumption that you need to over, overcome that it, you're not you, available to get the, the primary production. That is that the you have to show a lot more primary production activity in order to qualify for the exemption and that's mainly to prevent land banking by developers and you've got to be careful as well what is primary production because the arguments about you know, if you're propagating things then that's going to get you there but merely selling items so selling that produce doesn't get you there and the other thing that's relevant that there's a question about whether lucerne or, or you know, growing grass for want of a better term is enough to say that it qualifies as primary production, even if you are 
if you're selling the grass, you're probably okay. But if you're growing grass for own use because you're running an adjustment type of business, that's not going to be enough. A mere adjustment, of course, is not enough either. What is adjustment? Oh, adjustment is when you are allowing someone else's cattle to occupy your land or to run on your land. But wouldn't that count as primary production? Because you don't need to own the land to qualify for primary production. It's just that somebody must be using the land for primary production. Yes, except the person that's using the land and not using it for primary production, they're letting the cattle run there, but they're not conducting their, in an adjustment arrangement, that person is not conducting their primary production activity on that land. They're simply letting the cattle stay there or horses or whatever it is. Boarding houses and low-cost accommodation are very rare cases that qualify for an exemption. Would a boarding house be, for example, a youth hostel? Yeah, my experience is that land tax is not the biggest driver behind a number of these things, but more often than not, it's really about how do they get the cash flow in and what what are the terms. So quite often with low-cost accommodation, having long-term users is less remunerative than having short stay. Yeah, and the other thing to bear in mind is that the numbers, the thresholds are very low. So it's very hard to satisfy a threshold to come up to the low-cost accommodation or, you know, the boarding houses as well by reference to the maximum tariffs. I looked up the maximum tariff, for example, for a single accommodation without meals and something like $264, I think, a week. That is less than $50 a day. That's very little. Yeah, and with a boarding house, they can probably organise it if their boarding house is structured appropriately. So uh, but for the Yeah, but for the low-cost accommodation, no, it's, it's, it's very specifically for those organisations that are running low-cost Uh, housing and it's only within five kilometers of the uh, sydney general post office so very odd and that's largely because again when you're looking at the tariffs they're trying to say well this is really so that people can live close to the city in some respects there's a lot of history behind this when you go back you know if you if you've got a compass and you drew a a map to scale and you drew a, a circle around the gpo you'll pick up a number of areas which in the post-World War and, and certainly pre-World War II in that Depression era that you might have considered to be slums. And some of those are now gentrified. You don't even recognise some of those suburbs anymore as being slums. But that's what it was trying to pick up. It was trying to pick up those boarding houses in that area to enable people to be close to work. Oh, I see. So are these two exemptions basically relics from before the World Wars? The five kilometre thing, I, I believe, is a relic because you know the more appropriate thing to do would be to say, well, what is the, in each council area, what would be an appropriate low tariff threshold to set? If we we're going to do this as a matter of policy, you'd say, well, it doesn't, shouldn't really matter where in New South Wales you are. If you're providing low-cost accommodation for people in New South Wales, then you should be eligible for these types of concessions. Why it still remains as within five kilometres of Sydney GPO, I'm sure that there's a historical political reason for that. The boarding houses, that is... Not as relevant, it's just do you qualify for the maximum tariff? Then residential and caravan parks, if you have at least 50% of residents who are retired or at least 55, then you can qualify. And I think that's why a lot of retirement places, retirement villages advertise for anybody over the age of 55. Do you think that? Yeah, I think what it is about, it's probably a little bit the reverse, which is 
the planning systems, so the planning controls describe retirement villages and in New South Wales anyway, and the um, developments as being appropriate for aged persons and they set the threshold at 55 for that. And so all this provision does is try and link the tax concessions to the planning concessions. I don't think this is driven by land tax. It's driven more by the permitted use of the land. It's easier to get your plans through if you aim your residential accommodation at 55 plus. There are specific planning controls that enable you to do it. And not only that, if you are designing the, and I can't remember whether it's SEP 5 or, but there's a particular uh, planning instrument that's used. And the developments that you can do can be more intense. So the idea is you're close to shops or close to public transport. It enables people who are retired to maintain their independence as they age. But there's an arbitrary number of 55 that you have to be in order to qualify for that. The other exemptions are quite straightforward. If yeah, that I think so. The, council one. Yeah, the other ones are straightforward. So non-profit organisations, generally, if they're used, the land is being used in a way where they're not running a profitable activity. So that will be exempt. So again, covers schools, churches, and most charities. There are some charities which run commercial operations as part of their organisation. And if they are using the land for that purpose, it won't qualify for the land tax exemption. Retirement villages, aged care, nursing home. And the reasoning behind that yeah, comes back to the things we're talking about for the residential caravan parks. You know, that, that idea that if you're over 55, those types of developments should be exempt from land tax. And then childcare centres. So again, as long as you are registered, uh, that shouldn't be a problem. The Crown won't be paying tax on its own land, and that's not a surprise to anybody, but it includes Crown leases that are entered into before January 91. And there's still a number of those around. The last uh, one that you've mentioned here is if the land is below the threshold. And, and that's that's simply, again, taking what's the aggregate land value. And I'm not sure that the land, just merely because the land is below the threshold, that means that you've got an exemption from tax for that land. It's just a practical matter that says, you know, it's not the use of the land that's exempt, it's just the value in the way that the sliding scale works, or not that it is a sliding scale, where the threshold kicks in, then you're not effectively paying tax on that land if it's below that threshold. How the land tax is actually calculated, you look at your total land holdings, does that include your principal place of residence? So if your principal place of residence, no. for example, was 500,000 and your investment property would also be 500,000, would you then have to run the 1 million against the threshold of 734,000 or is it enough? No, no, it's again, you exclude exempt land. So the threshold only applies to accessible land. So that would mean my principal place of residence is put aside. We don't even look at it. And then the investment property of 500,000 would be under the threshold. So no land tax to pay. Correct. Coming back to who actually has to pay a land tax, so putting the exemptions aside, it's basically anybody. Anybody has to pay land tax for any land unless an exemption applies. So that means an SMSF, a discretionary trust, a company, everybody has to pay land tax. But That's the question right. is just whether a tax-free threshold applies. Correct. Discretionary trusts don't have a tax-free threshold, but companies Correct. and everybody else does? Yeah, I, I might 
put it slightly differently now, but okay. we're, we're talking, but essentially if it's a special trust, you don't get a tax-free threshold. And so special trust essentially is any trust other than a fixed trust. So only fixed trusts are entitled to a land tax threshold. Any other type of trust, including now unit trusts, must be some, you know, get a zero threshold. And again, if you go back in history, there used to be an express exemption for unit trusts that no longer applies. But a unit trust is a fixed trust unless it's a hybrid trust because it has some discretionary clauses in their deed. But if there yeah. are no discretionary clauses in the deed, then it is a fixed trust, isn't it? Well, Heidi, the, the lessons from the High Court, because the High Court always knows best, tell us that firstly, you have to read the deed and that merely classifying a trust in a particular way, as we might do generically, doesn't mean that that trust fits that description. So you have to read each deed. But more importantly, um, there was a Victorian case now going back about 15 years. And that was a case where there was a trust that was a unit trust and the particular Victorian exemption was argued about. And what the High Court said is, it's not a fixed trust for land tax purposes because you have the ability to change the unit holding and that the beneficiary's interest in a normal unit trust is only in the surplus after the liabilities are paid so that the beneficiaries in a unit trust don't have a look through to the underlying land. So when you're looking at the trust there, you've got the trust assets, the trust assets are administered, and they firstly must satisfy the charge against those assets, which is to pay creditors. And the entitlement of the unit holders is pro rata to whatever the balance is. So the High Court, in their wisdom, said that's not a fixed trust, so it's accessible for land tax. Okay, so that means it's very, very difficult to qualify as a fixed trust for land tax purposes. So most trusts will probably be a discretionary trust and hence not be entitled to the tax-free threshold. And the same probably applies to SMSFs. SMSFs then also wouldn't be entitled to the tax-free threshold, correct? I'm going to come back to that. With the fixed, the, talking about the unit trust deeds, the New South Wales Office of State Revenue has some concessions so that if you amend your trust in a particular way, you can still amend it to make provisions for it to be a land tax fixed trust and still get some of the other benefits of being a conventional unit trust. So there are still some avenues to, to go down there. Super funds, in theory, you would think that the same principle applies, but the tax office, land tax office, will permit a threshold to be available. Um, and some sort of says they may attribute the land that's owned by the super fund to the membership interest of the member or of the members if two members own 100 of the property then the smsf is liable for 100 of the um, land tax. Yes. yeah okay but what you're saying is if the smsf owns the land in conjunction with for example the individual in individual names then 50 of the land tax would fall on the individual and 50 would fall onto the smsf just just yes. any combination of ownership interests. That's correct. So that means SMSFs get the tax-free threshold, companies and individuals and unit trusts get the tax-free threshold. Companies Own and individuals get the tax-free threshold. Fixed unit trusts will get a tax-free threshold, but any other type of trust will not. Companies, individuals and SMSFs and fixed unit trusts get the threshold. Yeah. Any other yeah. trust doesn't. 
Yeah. That means you really shouldn't hold investment properties in a discretionary trust. You've yeah, got I'm to balance what you're doing. So you've got to balance. So land tax is only one component of the decision. And you've got to also look at what are your income tax and capital gains tax positions and what is your asset protection strategy. And you've got to make sure that you're covering all of those things. But if you're just looking at the financials, there is no financial benefit from land tax perspective of holding the property anything other than your own note. Or in a company if it's commercial property and you need again, it for your business. Again, from a land tax perspective, correct. Anything except discretionary trust. Again, yes. And from a just looking from a land tax perspective only. The way it's actually calculated. So you take the value of the total land holdings and then you deduct the uh, tax-free threshold. And then I think you apply two different percentages yeah so then you're looking at another percentage which is is the land going to be in that premium property so what's the you know, is the value that's going to be there so once you get over the higher threshold then there's an additional land tax that's assessed so the normal rate is a hundred dollars for the first 734 or whatever the threshold amount is and then 1.6 percent thereafter but once you hit the premium threshold. So let's say that's four million. Yeah, it's four million four hundred eighty-eight thousand at the moment. Yeah, then the rate moves up to two percent after that. So it's tiered like our income tax. The lower value gets a lower percentage, and then the once you are past a certain bracket, then the excess is hit with a higher percentage. Yeah, and, and remembering at all times, it's on the aggregated value. So it's not on a single holding basis. But your principal place of residence doesn't go into this. So if you have Correct. a number of investment properties, the total value that you consider for land tax does not include your family home. Correct. And then don't forget as well that if you're a foreign person, there's an, an extra charge as well. Yeah. Yes. The highest threshold is 4488000 but it's only on the land value and it's only as per the evaluation of the valuer general. And those land values are actually surprisingly low. If you look at the valuations, they are actually surprisingly low. Yeah, you can get a suppose because there's, there's not necessarily a correlation between land value and what you can sell your property for. In theory, there should be, but in practice, we know that there's that the correlation is, is not what you might think it is. And quite often, you know, when you're doing property work, you can see that there's a boom in the property market, but there's still a lag in land tax values. And sometimes that happens in reverse. And there are separate avenues to appeal land tax valuations. So a land tax assessment based on exemptions, that goes through the normal way. You object against that and then you go through the tribunal. The land tax valuations end up essentially with the supervision of the Land Environment Court because it's a value a general decision about amounts. As a rough sum rule, my gut feeling is the land tax valuations are often only 30 or 40% of the actual value of the property, so quite low. Yeah, in relative terms. The one thing that I will say is that, that people, they either register for land tax and then they comply properly, but there are a lot of people that haven't registered for land tax or have just simply thought, well, my properties, my investment property is below the threshold. I don't need to. And then they get a bit of a shock when the land tax values, the values of the property spike. 
and they have to be in the land tax net. And the land tax itself is a charge on the land. And what that means is that if you try and sell the land, the land tax will be first in line, even before the bank. So that's, you know, that's probably something which is, you know, people don't think about as much. But apart from that, it's really, the, the issues are quite straightforward. How much is the aggregate land value? And does an exemption apply to any parcel of land before you add it all up? And then if it's investment property, particularly if it's commercial investment property, are you thinking about to what extent can I pass on some or all of this liability to someone else? Tenants, for example. Do you need to register for land tax even if your total land holdings are below the threshold? So are below 734,000 excluding your family home? I take the view that there's no point in registering unless you are a land tax payer, but it would be prudent to do so if you were being a, a land tax payer. Welcome back. So any of your land is subject to land tax unless an exemption applies. The most common ones are principal place of residence and farmland. And you're entitled to the tax-free threshold unless you are a non-fixed trust. Thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.